She was born in November 1963, the day I was Huxley died. Back to Slate for Performance Radio Season 2, Episode 9, our second last episode of this season. Today I am joined by Dr. John Illuf. John is an emergency uh, physician at Sir Charlie Gardner's Hospital, or Sir Charles Gardner Hospital, commonly known as Charlie's here in Perth in Western Australia. As you will hear, John is from Ireland originally. And I met John while I was lying on my side in absolute agony in the hospital. Uh, with a with a back injury, and he goes, "I know you." <laughs> and it turned out John had been working with the Western Force, so he had seen my name on on documents and stuff, I suppose, or reports about some of the work we've been doing. So once uh, John got me nice and uh, pain free, let's say, <laughs> and my injury subsided, um, a few weeks later, I contacted John about coming on the podcast um, because John has some interest in personal experience around the management of fatigue being a medical doctor and as many people would know medical doctors work 24 7 particularly in emergency medicine and so john uh, in this episode discusses his experience with shift work good and bad and how he manages it and how the sort of the team environment manages it as well this is a very interesting episode uh one that has um somebody know who is undertaking shift work and leading people within shift work as well in a very high pressure environment and you know where people require i suppose these doctors to be you know on the ball so to speak at every hour of the day in a 24 7 emergency uh, medicine department so yeah it's a very interesting episode and uh, i hope you enjoy it there is a small note here about the sound and the way into this episode for the first three to four minutes is a bit low uh, every episode my sound knowledge gets better so I managed to twiddle a few knobs here press a few buttons and the sound comes right about three or four minutes in so just bear with that for the first few moments okay we're gonna have some ads and then we'll be straight into the episode She knows she still belongs, but 
Forbes. Forbes are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now, Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize the quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centers to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WF philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting to the future what your performance is going to be based upon 
your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location. So a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this. The Chicago Cubs have used this. Military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball. Um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport. It's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC so it's a wide variety of applications so if fatigue is important to you and your organization whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce head to fatiguescience.com that's fatiguescience.com to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ready band can improve safety and performance in your organization Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am joined by Dr. John. How do you pronounce your last name? It's Eilif. Eilif? Yeah, so it's not, not a common name, name but um, yeah, the one I was graced with by my father. So thanks, Dad. Is that an Irish name? <laughs> no, it's Norwegian. So uh, from many, many years ago. So there's a few Eilifs knocking around the north coast of Antrim back in Ireland. Really? So yeah. you're like direct descendant of the Vikings? That's what apparently I'm told by my dad, but I like to think of myself full, fully blooded Irish at this stage. Fully blooded Irish, so you're well diluted now. So oh, absolutely. You're not going to go like, you know, crazy like in the Viking show, right? I, I, I don't think there'll be too much raping and pillaging going on, so I think I'll be just just stick to being Irish now. Thank God for that because we are sitting in my apartment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I am joined by John today. John, um, tell the good listeners at home what you do for a living. Um, so I'm in a uh, emergency register in uh, Charles Gardner Hospital here in Perth. Um, so I work primarily in the, say, only in the emergency department um, as one of the registrars. Um, so in advanced training, uh, looking to get towards a, um, a, a advanced... Uh, uh, so as a uh, consultant in emergency medicine. Consultant in emergency medicine. Yeah. All right. So many people will be familiar uh, with very heavy medical training like mm. I am, watching 20 seasons of ER. Mm. Um is it really like that? Uh, well, that's what I base my whole uh, career really on, is actually trying to be like George Clooney, except there's uh, less sex, drugs, and rock and roll, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, that's what I was sort of expecting, you know, a life of grime and, you know, would age gracefully instead of I now have less hair than George Clooney. But it's, um, to, be, to be honest, it's probably not all that it's meant to be or all that's like um, yeah. in the emergency department. is not. It's more, it is a busy department to work in in the world of medicine. And I find that in regards to other different parts of hospital medicine, it's very much camaraderie built, which is what you do see on all those shows like Holby City or 
um, ER. It is very much a teamwork yeah. um, and team orientated specialty, which is great. I mean, there's less, probably less shouting and less um, sort of drama. drama because what you do find is that a lot of the people who are trained many years above myself in regards to experience is that they, are, they, they do work, they work cohesively with a team and it's nothing they haven't seen or dealt with before. And yeah, because when you watch ER, it's all crazy, you know, running from one room to the other. But when you do go to an ED or an ER department, it's actually very methodical. It's mm. in control. There's like systems and channels mm. that people go down. There's prioritization mm. when you go in. You know, so people are kind of, you know, um, triaged. I'm glad I thought that word it makes yeah. me sound clever. Uh, triaged and then kind of seen on, yeah. you know, it's not based upon time waiting in the, yeah. in the waiting room. It's based upon the need, I suppose, mm. you know. And so it's really interesting when you are in an ER department that it's very slow, methodical. And you do see a lot of the staff having that camaraderie. So, mm. um, yeah, I think which would be would be needed, obviously, mm. in a role like that that could be quite stressful. What what made you get into medicine growing up in Ireland? Um, I, I suppose I was always really geared towards science as well. You know, that was where um, sort of my interest was in school. And initially, I always wanted to be a dentist. And for years, sort of thought I'd be a dentist. And um, said that during my uh, school uh, work experience week, they said, "Oh, you know, you have to go off and do your your bits and pieces with where you want to go in your career." So I, I went to a local dentist to try it out because that's what I thought I wanted to do. And after about a few days I realized you know this is probably not what I expected it to be you know I was probably expecting something a little bit more and then I thought it was going to be do veterinary uh, like a lot of my uncles who are vets yeah. already and I thought yeah this is you know possibly where I'm a bit more geared to but uh, one of my best friends in school his father is a GP and he said well have you ever thought about medicine and I'm like well well possibly did a, a day or two with him in his general practice um up in Northern Ireland and then he said well how about we get a wait week for you in the hospital so that uh one of the Belfast hospitals had um, a week dedicated to bringing secondary school students in just to show them the ropes, and it was tremendous. You, know, you got to go into surgery, had a look around the emergency department. Um, I thought, yep, yeah, this is definitely for me. And then consequently, I went and did a few days down in Thurlis General Hospital. In Tipperary. Uh, in Tipperary, yeah. and loved it. And said, that this is what I'll do. And yeah, thankfully got a place in uni to go study. So I was um, just delighted to get into it. So you went straight from school into uni to study medicine? Yeah, that's right. So I went into Trinity College in Dublin. So I'm very lucky to get a spot there. And um, yeah, it was just uh, worked out all, all pretty well. So got through the exams and started working then after that. So you must be really clever. I don't know about really clever now, to be honest. I think, uh, I, think I can uh, I maybe possibly take on information pretty quickly and then regurgitate it even quicker in an exam, so possibly. Around Which is a measure of being clever. Yeah. So for, th for those people who don't know, in Ireland, when you go to school, um, you do like a, a leaving cert, which is similar to the HSC in Australia or um, high school diploma in America. You do six subjects, was when I went, anyway, 20-something years ago. Um, you do, well, you can do as many subjects as you want, but you get scored out your best six. A perfect score is 600. And medicine, when I was going to school, was like five ninety five. So it's it's something like that now. Well, I was I was actually very lucky that I went to. Northern was it two seventy? Dear you went. I actually I actually did A levels in Northern Ireland, so I got to avoid all of the. the oh really? Of, yeah. So I um, I studied up in uh, in Uri in County Down, and um, thankfully with A levels, it was actually a lot easier. So it was nice structured. So did um, your parents kick you out when you ran away, or did did, did you were you did you grow up there, or how? Uh, I was in boarding school up there. So they must have hated me at the age of eleven to say off you go. That was it. it worked out okay in the end, and we talk again. So that's all right. But um, yeah, no. So I did the A levels up in Northern Ireland, and thankfully it wasn't as gruesome as what you guys had to do in the leaving cert in the south. It was two weeks of 
you know, sort of heart graft and yeah, yeah. study that this was all over two years, just doing an exam every few months. Oh, so you get great. graded over the whole two years? Yeah, oh, so that's, you, yeah. So you knew where you were going or yeah, how yeah. you were doing, and yeah. you could actually repeat exams as well. If you oh, really? To. Yeah, so it was actually a lot, you could, I think, argue a lot easier. Like my See, the English do, do, do good some, some yeah, good they, things, don't they? Every so often, yeah. <laughs> but even my, my younger sister, who's um, a doctor as well, she works in Wales. She had to do the, um, uh, she studied in the South, but in, yeah. um, back at our family home. And uh, yeah, she, when she she studied, she got five eight five in her leaving and couldn't get a place in medicine back at home, and ended up moving over to Cardiff to to study there. So it is very competitive. Yeah, back, yeah. back at home to get a place. Yeah, it's crazy. And then also, um, so you're quite young going in studying medicine. That that workload. I've spoken to people in their thirties. You mm. know, I know people with PhDs who come back to do medicine and have mm. said like, you know, the workload is crazy. How did you cope with that workload so young and? You know. well, to be honest, I think I was probably used to it. I think boarding school was quite good for a discipline area when, or di- disciplining yourself in regards to sitting down and actually doing study, where we'd allocated hours of your evening where oh, you're in the study yeah, hall, yeah. you do your work, yeah. and I suppose that worked out quite well for me. But I think there also was really the work-life balance essentially. You know, I played a lot of sport in college, and that kept me. Um, so it kept me sane, I reckon, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You go out, you do your exercise, and then you come back and do an hour or two's work in the evening, and then you go off a few beers, you know, every so often during the week and at the weekends. You know, I think it was very important to get that balance. So and to be honest, I had tremendous support from my family as well. So there's no question without my folks um, and friends as well, just for support. That was uh, sort of a big player, particularly in getting through to the, the end goal of getting your piece of paper at the end of it. Yeah, and so many years is it then through the medicine, uh, the medical degree yeah. there? Is so it? it was five years in Trinity. They used to do six uh, with a pre-med year, but they decided to get ri- rid of that for whatever yeah. reason. I'm not sure, but uh, so I was five years and then graduated at uh, 23. God, that's so young. Yeah, and I suppose it's scary enough thinking, you know, now what, I'm 30 years old now and you see 23-year-olds coming out. You're like, geez, was I actually that young when you were finishing? You, you, you forget that that's what you were like. You were coming yeah. out bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and let loose on the unsuspecting public. So when you did medicine and you completed your degree, um, where did you want to go? Did you want to like, you know, did you want to go and be a plastic surgeon and make millions in Hollywood? Did you want to be, you know, <laughs> did you want to, you know, um, work with sports teams? Did you want to do emergency? Did you want to do orthopedics? Did you want to do surgery? Where were you at that stage when so you left? I was sort of drifting towards when I was going through, always towards orthopedic surgery. Um, I thought that's what I wanted to do, just you know, so do advanced carpentry essentially with bows and I thought that was I thought that's where I was geared to and I must get you to look at a floorboard here later yeah, that's on. Right. <laughs> I, think, I think the floorboards are looking pretty good at the moment so. um, yeah that's where I was geared to and I was sort of drifting towards that and then sort of realised that after doing time as a student um, when I was actually a student in theatre um, I hated standing up for long periods of time, and because uh, it would hurt your back. <laughs> well, it would hurt my back, but I actually I was with um, I was with a hepatobiliary surgeon in um, back in Tala on a, as a student. I was holding the camera for him once, and uh, I don't know whether I hadn't drank enough water or anything that day, but I remember I, I, my vision went blank one morning, and I just said to him, "I was like, Prof, I I'm going to have to step back away." So why is that? Is that because I can't see anymore? And he's like, "Somebody please hold the camera," and I had to stand back and nearly passed out. So. I realized, you know, perhaps a life of surgery is not for me. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, that's, yeah, sort of looked at other things. And I, li- I liked surgery and I've had some terrific bosses who are very inspirational. But I think my interest goes towards more quick care medicine in the emergency field. And after a placement in Kilkenny back in Ireland, sort of rural ED, I realized that's what I really wanted to do. So I was very happy then pursuing that then after that. Yeah. And so emergency is quite, I would imagine, quite high paced. The shifts go quick. Mm-hmm. It's quite interactive. Uh, being so young, 
how did you kind of you know deal with because you, you come across all sorts of people mm. how did you how did you deal with that being exposed because you had that kind of I suppose kind of sheltered maybe upbringing from being in a boarding school to yeah. being in uni and then all of a sudden you were just exposed to everybody and everything what was that like at the start was it overwhelming or I think it was actually quite overwhelming particularly when you see like you see people from all walks of life and it was fun, you know it was fantastic I, I love the the variety of the, what you see it's you know to put it in uh, I suppose perspective of that if you're an orthopedic surgeon you deal with fractures you deal with you know bone related issues if you are a cardiologist you deal with heart related stuff in yeah. the emergency world you deal with a bit of everything and that's the the variety which I really enjoyed, and I thought that that was where I would really sort of thrive in regards to a future career. I sort of realised that I just wanted something a little bit different every day that I go to work. I didn't want to see the same stuff every day. And um, pursuing the career in emergency, that's been very much the case. No day at work is the same, which is brilliant. But like you say, you meet a lot of different type of people, and I think one thing which also was a big factor is that when people come to emergency you're possibly meeting people on the worst day of their lives mm. you know this is what i realize is that the emergency is nearly a beacon for where people go when they just have nowhere else to go and that can be somebody who's having cpr because they've had a heart attack and are are um uh, are in complete dire straits they're brought in by an ambulance with cpr going to the homeless person who has nowhere else to go, who's just down and out on their luck. Yeah. That's where they go. It's where somebody who has you know, sort of chronic abdominal pain or chronic back pain, they just do not know what to do. And there we go to the emergency department. And from a holistic point of view, if you want to call it that, the ability where you arrive and people have only shut doors in their face is that the ability to open doors to make a path that actually is going to be better for them and actually help improve their, their lives somewhat. That's something I liked as well. So emergency medicine is not just, well obviously there's that primary kind of care about, you know, instant response type stuff where mm. something's gone on, but there's, you're mentioning a whole host of other things there where people have nowhere else to go. There's much more kind of humanity in that and there's lots more factors than just kind of what you see. Mm. It's the cognitive, the emotional part, you know, the whole kind of interaction with somebody. So it's quite... It's quite broad, isn't it? Like how you, yeah, how you it attract is very people. Broad. It, it's, and I think that's why I think is like with nothing, with nothing comparable to it in regards to the day work that you see. You, you don't. No day is going to be the same for us. Yeah, and that's something I really like. And I think the fact that you just have to adjust to any particular situation that happens in a lot of different medical specialties as well. Something just because it looks like a duck and talks like a duck doesn't necessarily mean it's a duck it could be something else you've got to deal with that you got to be able to adjust to what you see and yeah. not necessarily act like a robot and say that this is the definite path and different definite thing i should do you've just got to be able to adjust and take the particular situation mm. in context of the person that's in front of you and deal with that because it's very easy to sort of act on this person has a chest infection they need to be given the x medication and then they're going to get better that's not necessarily the case you've got to actually talk to somebody and think, well, what, is this going to be right for them? Yeah. And just because it's right for them doesn't mean it's right for the next person. And that's so as a feature, certainly, in a lot of different facets of medicine, but I find that more so in ED, and I like that that challenge, to be honest. That's something I really enjoy. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Like, for me, personally, working in sort of business improvement roles throughout my career and elements of engineering, it's kind of, you know, inputs, process, outputs, and you know what you're mm. going to get. And then when I've kind of worked in the human sciences or, you know, my PhD around sleep, you know, and have human human sciences, human biology, we're all so different. Mm. It's it's never like, 
inputs and outputs and this is some of the challenges i have with industry and even with athletes as well is you can't always you know you know completely you know see the issue and just fix it straight away and it must mm. be even more complex in emergency to see all that because there's all these other issues that may be going on that the person might tell you they might not say in front of a partner they may mm. be embarrassed about yeah you might have asked the question correctly it might be an open question versus a closed question so all that sort of that sort of way of uh, identifying the problem is something that you would i would imagine you would have to learn on the job you could never really learn in uni it's something you're gonna have mm. to learn by by trial and error mm. learn from your seniors and 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 by accident and making some mistakes yeah i i completely agree and that's it's only by being put in that scenario where you get experience and you know possibly ways to deal with one interaction compared to another interaction of something of a, a similar situation. Yeah. And yeah, you, you don't get taught that in you. You may get a few basic bits and pieces on regards to communicating well, but it won't, you can have all the training in the world, but you're still going to become, you're going to f- find surprises no matter where you go and just having to adjust to that and adjust appropriately. That's sometimes the, the big challenge, I reckon. Yeah. So we are going to talk about sleep and shift work and performance and so on in a moment. But I do want to kind of ask you, because many people will be like, right, he's in emergency. What's the craziest thing he's ever ever seen? So I'm going to ask you two mm-hmm. questions. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen come in the door? And what was the funniest thing you've ever seen come in the door? <laughs> so it's never wow. crazy. Jeez, I'm going to have to really think about that. Um, what's the craziest thing that's coming through the door? Which could be the funniest too. <laughs> uh, um, I think, I suppose probably the funniest thing I think has come that's come through the door is I have seen, albeit not in any way complex, is I have seen a, um, <laughs> I have seen a patient come through with um, a paper cut who called an ambulance, and <laughs> the ambulance actually picked them up. And I looked at them, and they were they were triaged as per a paper cut on their hand, and just didn't have really have a grasp on how to deal with this. And I sort of looked at it, put a plaster on, and said, "On your on your way." <laughs> and you know, you try to look for other things that make it complicated, oh. but at the end of the day, it was just a paper cut that they just couldn't <laughs> deal with. Um, and I suppose there, there have been some other other funny incidents of things being stuck where they shouldn't be, but uh, I wouldn't want to gross out too many of your listeners for, for graphic details of what, the, what they were and that where seems, they were. That seems to be really common. That was in an episode of ER, and then mm. we, in this in our household here, we absolutely love 24 hours in emergency mm. or 24 hours in A&E, and there's always some sort of foreign object stuck somewhere, and always yeah. in air or other place. Exactly, like, yeah. What is wrong with people out there? People, <laughs> please stop shoving objects or people or fingers or anything inside your body. <laughs> Get it out of there. Like, yeah. I don't understand this obsession like, yeah. with shoving things into your body somewhere. Yeah, I think it's... Um, we're talking like, about adults here, by the way. Yeah. I think this has to be one of those things where people just find their niche of what they like, and uh, that's um, that's absolutely fine, but I think you just have to make sure it has a string attached to it so you can retrieve it so it doesn't uh, doesn't get that complicated. So maybe, maybe try fishing instead. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> okay, so um, I do want to talk about how... Uh, John and I met because some people were like, how did he get this guy in the podcast? So speaking of weirdos coming through the door and funny things, <laughs> I actually met John while I was half naked with my left arm extended over my head, lying on my right side, looking at the ground with tears streaming out my eyes. And John came in and went, what seems to be the problem? And I was like, I wanted to say to him, what do you think is the problem? So I was lying there in absolute agony. You should say this actually was in the hospital. It wasn't. Oh yeah, it was in the hospital. It wasn't wasn't actually in the pub or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then then, so I had had two bulging discs, a hernia. Yeah, two bulging discs, a hernia, a disc, and diagnosed with spinal stenosis. I was in severe pain. So John gladly uh, doped me up with with tablets, uh, which 
afterwards I said to my wife, I see why people get addicted to oxys because that was such a nice feeling. Um, but then uh, also John goes, looks at the end of the bed, I recognize your name from somewhere. And it turns out that John had been doing some stuff with the Western Force in her 20s. And as many people would know, um, I've been working with the Western Force for a number of years doing research. And John works with the broader Western Force as well. Mm. So we had some mutual connections. So we started getting talking, which was good because it took my mind off the pain a little bit. And then by the time the medication kicked in, I was floating. So that's that's how we that's how we met that day. Now, John, if you want to... Stick the boot into me here now at any stage. This is your only opportunity. No, to be honest, you're doing pretty well. It's good to see you actually walking <laughs> around now and uh, and, and cl- fully clothed is also good. <laughs> yeah, that, that little gown. Uh, I said to my wife, I have to go to the toilet. And so we stood up and we were walking. My wife goes, <laughs> you need to tie the back of that. I said, can't, my arm is too sore. So yeah, I shuffled off down the hall um, with the gown open and she took a picture of me, put it on Instagram. So that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so John, um, being a doctor, 24-7 operation for many surgeons, many people, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of probably GPs who even may be on call as well. What does a typical shift roster system look like in a hospital here in Australia that you work? Well, I suppose you've got, a pretty, you've got to really split it up into those different um, specialties. So where I work in emergency medicine, it's very... Um, it's very regimented in regards to shifts. So you have either a day shift, an evening shift, or a night shift, um, which is is the to be honest the correct way to go about doing emergency medicine it's very high high pace it is um high acuity and when we say high acuity you've got a lot of very sick people coming in in quite high numbers a lot of the times and to be able to sustain that beyond let's say a 10-hour shift is very difficult Places like intensive care as well also work in shift patterns as well, bar, say, some of the senior staff who will be on call. And also for us in the emergency department, we have consultants who are on call for 24 hours. So they'll come and do a shift but are available to come in to help out if needs be for some extra hands on deck and for an extra advice. So just yeah. just so people are aware, because we were speaking about this before the episode, there's junior doctors, registrars, and then consultants. That's but correct, registrars yeah. are like the kind of you know, lieutenants on the ground every day running the show with mm. the junior doctors and then consultants come in sort of during day shift or by exception at night. Mm. Is that correct? Um, probably, the probably consultants, to be honest, are a little bit more proactive than certainly than in the emergency department than possibly than other specialties. We have a consultant okay. presence Certainly there must be, I have to think, they're there from 8 o'clock until at least midnight. So we have, oh, okay. yeah, we have a very good presence okay. for 16 hours yeah, yeah. of constant consultant coverage. And then it's once they hit midnight, then they'll head on home, provided everything's okay. Yeah. Um, which is, it's terrific to have that support. And then it's not unheard of if the things are a little bit rough on a night shift that they'll be in straight away. And I'm very happy to say I have terrific consultant colleagues who will come in at a drop of a hat when you say you just need to have them around for some extra hands or from for some advice yeah so we are very well covered like that and i think that the difference for say internal hospital doctors and that's when you're enca- encapsulating say surgical teams medical teams like your cardiologists your your um your orthopedic surgeons it's not unheard of that their doctors particularly their registrars will do 24 hours on call Mm. and that will involve being on the hospital for a large proportion of time and then called back into hospital if anything is requires their attention so they may have to come to ed to see patients they may need to go to the wards to see patients but they are getting woken up in the middle of the night by potentially the emergency department by 
ward doctors, ward nurses, if anything goes wrong. So that's not unheard of. And then coming back in to do their next day. So I do feel fairly protected in the emergency life that at least we are very stringent on shift pattern and you have to conform to that by the Australian medical working law is that you can't go beyond those working hours yeah. um, and you must have mandatory eight hour breaks between your shifts. So if you finish at say midnight, you um, you are not allowed back in until eight o'clock in the next morning. Yeah. So that, it it works out quite well, and you do get an opportunity to rest, which is good. But I wish my other colleagues, say who work in internal medical specialties, get that opportunity. But unfortunately, it's just not feasible with their staffing levels. Yeah. So it, the you got the day shift, the evening shift, the night shift. What mm -hmm. time does the day shift start and finish? So that starts at eight o'clock and then finishes at six o'clock in the evening, and then. Uh, so evening shift will start at half past one and then finish around half past 11 at night. So there's a crossover period. So, yes, yeah, so we have a crossover period. And then same with the night staff. They will start about half past 10. So there's an hour crossover period and then they finish at half past eight. So a very small crossover period in the morning for yeah, half yeah. an hour just to get the night staff home. Do you have more to crossover during the day because is that, is that kind of identified as a peak period when people come in? or um, Usually it's just to get a few extra staff on um, from the beginning of the day. But this is like you say... Um, you want you do we do identify in emergency that it's from the afternoon that people start to really come in the door, particularly okay. from that period of about three o'clock till possibly eight or nine o'clock. Okay, but you can predict where peak periods are going to be, but all it takes is one bus crash to yeah, happen, yeah, and yeah. then suddenly all bets are off, everything yeah. changes, and you've got to have that ability to change and adjust to that, which can be tricky because you will get surges depending on what's going on. And, you know, thankfully, touch wood, in Perth, we haven't had anything like that. But at least there's a good enough network among the emergency departments to be able to deal with a surge, um, a surge event whereby we dissipate um, patients among the different hospitals yeah, in an yeah. accident if, yeah. it, if it does happen. Yeah. And they do regular... Um, uh, regular training days for disaster management yep. in the state, which is fantastic. Um, so that's the sort of way we would approach that. But even though we have staff on at certain parts of the day, it just it doesn't really take into account what can happen on a daily basis because we just don't know. You just don't know, yeah. And the other day we had, um, if we sort of put it into um, into a structured term of the triage category that you were talking about earlier, we have category one is a medical emergency. Um, they come immediately into the department. They don't wait. Yeah. A category two is waiting 10 minutes as a maximum. Category three, waiting half an hour maximum. Um, we had 20 category twos in two hours um, and three category ones in that two hour period where there was just a flood of activity. Mm. And with that, that requires quite a lot of medical and nursing input and a lot of staff being taken away from other areas of the emergency department. So you just don't know. And that was on a, a random Monday morning. So anything can happen. Yeah, so it's very difficult to plan. So in, mm. in terms of the shift and rosters, we spoke about the day shifts and the rotation of those. Mm. Well, actually the rotation. Do you mm. go days, evenings, nights? And how many yeah. of those do you do? Like yeah, so that's usually how, I, I believe there's quite a lot of data to say that that is the, the best cycle yeah. to go on. So, you so start it's called a forward day. advancing roster. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And um, yeah, so we would typically go on to, to days, to evenings, to nights. However, the way we try and structure it is we try and get a few nights off in a row. We, uh, the department which I work in, they don't like particularly doing one or two nights here or there. You will do a block of, say, three nights or a block of four nights with a few day shifts prior to that so yeah. you, uh, or evening shifts prior to that to try and keep into that um, 
uh, work sleep cycle, which I think works for the majority of people. Yeah. So what would you do? Like uh, a typical, would it be like you know two days on, two day shifts, followed by two evening shifts, two night shifts, and then like two or three off? Or how, do, how um, is, it, is it is it a sim- is it a kind of a regular pattern? Or uh, so we have a regular eight week rolling roster, so it sort of follows that. So you might have say five evening shifts, four days off, three day shifts, four night shifts, seven days off, um, and for example, maybe seven day shifts. Uh, three days off, two days off. It it does go with a variety, yeah, but I yeah. think the main thing is that they have a few day shifts prior to your night shift, so you don't just launch into those night shifts straight off the bat, which I think does work out fairly well for our junior doctors and our nurses as well. Yeah, and like we were saying as well before, you're not just doing those shifts, you've also got exams to sit. If you're a junior doctor, you're learning a lot on the job, yeah. you've got other exams, and you as a registrar got exams, mm. and there's constant professional development. People might be writing papers with other people doing research. So you're constantly, um, it's not a case of, <laughs> it's funny because a lot of people think, you know, you just go to uni and you do your degree and then that's it. Mm. But I think in a medical profession or even if people are going to research, it's just continuous. You just keep rolling, mm. you know, so you don't you don't really stop. You kind of keep that momentum going. Yeah, very true. And to be honest, I, I reckon I reckon I didn't research enough into when I said I want to be a doctor. I didn't realize that you had to do all this extra stuff on top of that. Yeah. I didn't realize you were going to be, say, writing papers or going to be studying for any more exams. I probably was a little bit naive. And as I went through university, I then realized, you know, it's not actually going to stop here. I've got more stuff I've got to do. And, yeah, that's okay. And it's still a decision I'm very happy I made. But something I didn't actually realize. And even though as sort of time is going on and thankfully I've come towards the end of that studying block now or certainly in sight at this point in time, which is reassuring, <laughs> I didn't reckon that I'd say even 30 I'd still be studying for big exams and you know, having 10 hours, say, on my days off sitting and looking at books. But that's part and parcel of the job. And to become trained to that level you have to be to give that level of care, I completely understand that and I completely respect that. So I think yeah. it's... It's something we just have to do, and you've got to really grin and bear it because otherwise you're not going to be able to deliver that care that people need and that the job requires you to do so. I'd be interested to talk to you in a couple of years when you've stopped all the kind of, you know, education. Will you be like, oh, you know what, I started doing you know, a PhD or I started doing a master's and something else. <laughs> like, will you kind of get addicted to the cycle of learning where I, after a few months you'll be like, man, I'm really bored. I want to do something. That's, I'll probably be out of that. You know, I just <laughs> want to get out of the house or something. You know, you want to find something else to do and I'll uh, you know, be sick of cycling or something. Uh, like I'm that. doing a master's in fine art. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm going to draw for the patients. Oh, I, I, I always fancied a history degree. You know, maybe go off and do that for a few years. I love history. <laughs> That's actually someone said to me when I finished my PhD, what's next? I said, maybe history. I mm. absolutely, I don't, maybe it's, my wife thinks it's an Irish thing. She's Australian and she's like Irish people where history facts always with the history facts mm. there's something about Irish people just love history I don't know what it is it usually relates to the Brits and how long they were sticking around was it 800 years they stuck around for I think it was 802 but <laughs> who's counting <laughs> I love saying that to my English mates but it's all good um, so John before you do shift work um, you know day shifts are probably fairly easy to manage mm-hmm. Night, evening shifts are can be somewhat tricky um, but night shifts is probably where the hardest thing to do because you've got to sleep during the day how do you manage your preparation for night shift and then how do you manage the sleep from the mm. night shift so what's in and what's out of that uh, well, what i what i try and do when it comes to a night block when i saved on my three day shifts and then i face yeah. the four night shifts coming up i'll try and stay up 
pretty late after my last day shift. I'll stay up to maybe 2 or 3 a.m. I might be just watching some TV. At the moment, just doing a little bit of study, and then I'll sleep right through, say, to maybe 11, 12 uh, a.m. the next day. I get up, maybe do a few hours, a bit of exercise. It's important to do a little bit of exercise before going into night shift and then actually going back to bed for a few hours and then trying to get into a normal um, sleep cycle yeah. again. So which I can actually hit the night shift at 10.30 and go ahead and carry on as if it's a normal day. Now, mind you, it never ever feels like a normal day. Going into that first night shift, you are going to be a little bit groggy. But over the last few years, I found that that's actually what works best for me is just trying to get a little bit of sleep before, but having to get some exercise, be it going for a run, going to rugby training, doing something just to get into the swing of things. Um, and then after you finish that first night, you should have some light breakfast and then off to bed for maybe nine hours. And then I find I've actually got into it fairly easily then after that first 24 hour stint but that first 24 hours are pretty hard to adjust to yeah um and i think as i'm getting that little bit older i find it a bit easier and probably just not used to actually going out and clubbing as i was maybe then. <laughs> like, well, i was when i was a student i probably would have been able for it a bit better when i was 23 or 22 but now i just don't have that ability to <laughs> but uh that's what i find works for yeah. me yeah okay and so um finish the clock uh, the night shift you go home, you have like breakfast, and you say you go to bed for nine hours. And yeah. can you sleep for the whole nine hours, or is it fairly disrupted or broken? I suppose it depends if the um, if my better half wants me to do anything. If usually I can get um, get my nine hours sleep, but um, if suddenly I find I've got to do a bit of lawn mowing or something, I I'm up pretty quickly at uh, um, six o'clock when my my better half returns from work. So it it, it really depends. I, yeah, I, yeah. I have been known to to get up during the day and go off and do something that maybe there might be a rugby match to play midway through that cycle I will go and play just to get some exercise because I do find that when you work so many weekends and nights I that you know your life is only taken over by shift work yeah yeah and I I don't know I, I get a little bit of FOMO from not getting to do normal <laughs> stuff like you, when you work one and two weekends you don't get to do all the the fun stuff the weekend yeah. so I do want to go off and maybe meet people for dinner or go off and play a soccer match or a rugby match do something yeah, like yeah. that and then go back to bed then for a few hours I suppose it all depends on what you have to do because life can't stop. And unfortunately, the rest of life doesn't cooperate with people who do night shifts. You still got to do your normal stuff. You got to do your banking, yeah, yeah. your shopping and all that sort of stuff. And you've got to try and fit that in and doing nights at the same time. Now, thankfully, I do have a very, very supportive partner and she does a huge amount of that when I'm on nights. And I do get a lot of leeway in regards to cooking and cleaning when, when, it's, <laughs> when I am on nights. So I'm very thankful for that. But you just have to adjust to it, and that's what I find, um, say, over time, I'm getting used to being able to adjust to it. Yeah, you see, there's people now listening to this going, I thought doctors had mansions and servants, and we're just like, <laughs> wait on. <laughs> no, no, I was just a little, little cottage, cottage in South Perth, and that's okay. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I've actually come across a few people lately, paramedics and firefighters, that are speaking to me about doing what I call a split sleep cycle. Mm -hmm. They'll come off in the morning, now, some of these guys, particularly firefighters, get a chance to sleep overnight, more so than paramedics. Sure. Um, but they'll come off overnight, you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning, they'll go and have a few hours sleep, they'll come to like jujitsu train at lunchtime, mm. they'll train, they might have some tea, have a coffee, relax, do some stuff around the house, and then, you know, maybe then again in the afternoon, they'll get back down for two or three hours, mm. and they find that's better for them, because a lot of them, particularly the older guys, say that they wake up, and they're just lying in bed anyway. Yeah. So they might as well get up and do something, mm. you know, have the activity, kind of tire themselves out for 
you know, on a better word, and then maybe, you know, try to make themselves tired, and then that sleep drive will go up, and therefore mm. it'll get some more sleep again. So the split sleep cycle. Um, hear more about that recently. So it's interesting you say that you you often do that. Well, I, I just find that that's something that, I think for my social life, I want to do it, and I find that I'm still able to do it. I'm not too tired going into night, so I suppose that would fit yeah. in with maybe what the the, the fireys and paramedics are able to do as well. But I suppose it really depends on what type of night you have, and I think as time goes on, and perhaps as you get a little bit more senior and more experienced in the emergency department, your your ability to cope with the workload gets a bit easier as time goes on. There's, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. And you possibly go home a little less tired than you would be than say if yeah, you're yeah. completely mentally overloaded. Yeah, yeah. That you're able to deal with it. And I, you know, I find that exercise is a huge part in being able to sleep well and be able to cope well at work. And I do notice when, say, I'm say studying for exams or have a period where I might have six months of intense study or preparation for work for whatever reason, be it um, extra qualifications or studying for courses, and I don't exercise, I do see a big dip in, say, my performance at work or my ability to rest and relax. So I think exercise is extremely important, and, yeah, I think the, the benefits really show, yeah. personally, for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's interesting to hear. So, John, when you're on night shift and you're feeling, you know, pretty fatigued and it's like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning... What what sort of like food drinks do you go for? Are you one that kind of goes to the coffee machine, has cola drinks, you know? Do you go into the medicine cabinet like that show, Nurse Jackie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your kind of uh, what's your go to strategy for alertness on night shift? I'd love to be able to say that you know I am you know one of those sort of angels who only drinks water, only eats fruit. I'm not. What a halo is choking uh, you. I, I, it is choking me rather than I'm not. Uh, I, I do try and bring fruit and we'll bring like a platter of fruit maybe um, for night shifts for, for everybody to share around. Um, going past uh, that, the nice Taylor Road shop up in uh, in Netherlands, you get those really nice fr- uh, fruit platters. But Where is that? In, in- it's just along the Sterling Highway. This is a really good IGA and they have fantastic fruit. It's really good. Oh, the one... Oh yeah, for, it's on actually on the highway. Yeah, on the highway near the, far, near the city farmers yeah, or something. Yeah, right beside it. Yeah, oh. oh, they do really good fruit platters. So oh. occasionally, if I'm say driving past that after a rugby train, I'll pick one of those up going into night shift. He, he didn't bring one here today. No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you get the fruit yeah. platter in, you yeah. go, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, um, I, I try and eat well, but uh, as more and more time goes on, I realize I, I, I eat very poorly on nights. You know, I snack on on sugary stuff because that's what most people have they bring crisps they bring chocolate that people cook cakes and bring bits and pieces and they bring them in and yeah, yeah. you know it's very quick energy fix and yeah, that's what i find myself grazing on um i will occasionally have a, uh, a sandwich maybe maybe around 5 a.m just to, to keep going just until the uh, morning handover at eight eight o'clock but uh, i think i th- i think it is very hard and very difficult to say break that when it, there's so much available and particularly with my um, my sweet tooth when I see all this stuff it's very hard and knowing how good some of the baking is by a lot of the the, the staff in the hospital you say, oh, I might just have that brownie that all looks pretty good but I do I do hear and I do know that it's probably not the best idea and probably my weight has probably gone up quite a bit in the last five years than where I would like it to be but it's just that quick sugar fix which just keeps you going Are you, are you ever worried that somebody might actually you know bake you a, a cookie 
that's a little bit psychoactive because that was an episode in ER as well. Was that actually? Yeah, it was where the, um, <laughs> because we were watching it and my wife was saying, you just don't know what people are putting into stuff because we're talking about <laughs> eating cakes at work and we're like, maybe someone like is disgruntled and they got made redundant or <laughs> to make a cake and get everybody absolutely off their head and they walk out laughing. So Absolutely. I'd say if there's a big box of it and then suddenly the whole staff have gone through it, it'd be a pretty interesting place to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an episode yeah. of ER. I can't remember, one, one of the doctors, yeah, was like took a, took a hash brownie or something and it was like cooked for somebody who had cancer or one yeah something like that and they're off their head then walking around it's pretty funny oh, geez. Well, <laughs> thankfully I haven't, I haven't come across anything like that now but uh, it would be an interesting dynamic if you've got very sharp needles and going going near people like yourself with back pain as i like, don't worry i know exactly what i'm doing and if it does go through the eyeball i'm sure yes <laughs> Uh, with the um, we're working on night shift as well. Apart from the food, is there any sort of like physical activity strategies that you and the nurses and the staff may have? Um, do you ever ever sort of you know get the time where you kind of just go for a walk if it's really quiet? Do you do something? Do you try and move around? Is there any sort of do you have a game of who can do the many squats, who can do the most push-ups? <laughs> Who can who can shadow box the quickest? What, yeah. what do you have any of those things? Not really anything like that. Oh, it's an interesting concept whether we could actually do something like that and i think we probably would benefit from it I, I think i think it just gets a little bit too busy particularly the way things are going in emergency departments now where you have 60 patients in a department at any one time and say there are two senior level doctors four junior level doctors and possibly 20 nurses there's a lot of work to do that to be able to say take long long breaks and walks is just not really an option because there will be stuff going on yeah, with yeah. if it's not one patient it's another patient and you just can't afford to divert your time now there are lapses where you get five ten minutes to have a coffee or just sit back and a lot of those times i actually spend writing my notes that i should have written from hours yeah, yeah. ago and just trying to keep up on paperwork because what we find is that there is so much paperwork to keep on top of that say going off and just chilling out on a couch in say, a busy tertiary hospital where, like where I work is just not really very frequent. Now I will say that there are quiet nights and you know everybody sort of looks at each other as like, well, what, what's going on? Something's about to wait happen. Wait for it, wait, wait for it. it. There's, so, there's something coming in. You know, was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so there's always that sort of looming uh, fright, if you will, that there's something's going bad is going to happen and nobody ever says the the, the Q word that's uh, banned by all emergency staff. What's what's the Q word? I was, I'm not, you know, you're not going to tell me. <laughs> well, it's not an emergency no, department. No, you're, you're not going to tell me to say it. It's a curse word. So no, the, the quiet word. If you, quiet. Anybody, oh, if, it's quiet tonight. And, that, and, that's, and that's, that's what we get. It's like all the patients say god it's awful quiet here and you'll see the look of horror on every nurse physio and doctor works in the ed is like D you said it oh no that's funny you yeah. said it because we had the same thing in the military we're yeah. in south lebanon back yeah. in 98 and like man it's quiet now. it's not much like fire activity next minute the israelis would just open up you know it was always that same thing like keep your yeah. mouth shut yeah. because there were, especially between three and six o'clock in the morning to be yeah. activity mm. and we always like we went through a stage every woke up every morning and then we gone if you were, were on duty, you're like, oh, it's quiet tonight, and you mm. wouldn't have the words out of your mouth. Yeah, exactly. Later, it would start. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, we just, um, I think we, we've come to appreciate when those break, those lulls and activity do come, you just sit and you enjoy them. You have your cup of tea. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I think there is room where we should probably even like stretch or do something um, when you get that little bit of downtime, or if you can, just to you know, sort of try and yeah, I suppose keep yourself in in limber shape to keep going yeah, because. Yeah. It's just, it just is tricky um, in the nature of the work to be able to do that. It's quite yeah, it's quite an active job as well. Mm. So John, the, the consequences of shift work are probably well known. Um, there is a, a gentleman 
Professor Stephen Lockley, I don't know if you know him, he's at Harvard. I was doing some research with him back in 2010, 11, and 12. And uh, Steve has done a lot of work on work hours for medical doctors in the okay. States. And he was here in Perth, I want to say back in 2011, presenting on some interesting data about doctors after night shift and what happened. And he put up a case where um, one person was driving home. They crashed their car and killed somebody. They were found guilty of manslaughter, mm-hmm. sent to prison. The other person was a doctor driving home from night shift, killed somebody, and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So there's pretty, you know, dire con- consequences of, you know, shift work. And Steve was instrumental in changing the work hours for doctors in the States, in the mm-hmm. United States, and also informing the European, um, you know, sort of medical agencies in Europe about, yep. about work hours. And got a lot of flack for that as well, because a lot of people would say teaching hospitals, you know, the more hours of exposure. And, you mm-hmm. know, Steve would argue, well, it's not about just the hours of exposure. It's about the quality of the teaching, the quality of the exposure hours. And you just, we know that after 17 hours, your reaction time is impaired after 24 hours and 36, you know, you're just not cognitively mm-hmm. functional. No, 100%. Um, so with those consequences, um, have you seen those consequences yourself? Mm. Um, well, I actually regret to say I've been, I could nearly say, part of that data. I mean, when I was um, an intern back in Ireland, I um, I actually crashed my car after a 29-hour stint at work. 29? Yeah, so I um, I started my, say, it must be a Thursday morning, um, was in at work at 8 o'clock, did my, my day, uh, normal day's work, and then back in those back when I was an intern back in Ireland, you go on to a night shift then, and you have a night shift maybe every one in eight or one in nine days. So you go back to back. So you do your day, and then you start a night shift covering all the different wards, and each intern may cover up to 180 patients each um, of fairly sick patients. And you're going back and forth doing lots of different jobs and in, I'm going to say, stressful conditions. Um, that are sometimes very tricky to navigate when you're fresh out of medical school and perhaps not the best support at all times from senior staff. And I say that very I say that very occasionally because there are some fantastic senior doctors out there who are more than happy to do so, but I just wish it was across the board that you'd find that, and that wasn't the case. And it's actually part of the reason why I came out here. So as I continued through that night shift, I... Uh, possibly maybe got about one or two hours sleep during that um, night shift and then at seven o'clock when I go back to do my job my boss said I want you to come back with me to theatre I said well I've just finished my 24-hour stint which was the norm he said well listen I'm down a junior doc all you have to do is hold um, uh, hold an instrument for me in theatre and that was okay because I'm under his supervision and it was literally just a matter of just holding some instruments for him and at the end of the day, if I don't go in, then operation gets cancelled because there's just not enough hands to do it. And yeah. this might be saying to someone they have a major cancer operation they'll be waiting for a year to get done. They need somebody to do it or else they get cancelled, which you, know, you do feel obliged to help out. And particularly yeah, yeah. when your boss asks you to do that, you go and give him a hand. And so you go do the operation with him, that's fine. And that was after that, uh, I actually was driving home in Dublin and I fell asleep at the wheel and crashed into the back of a bus in peak hour traffic on a Friday. Um, and thankfully, there was no nobody hurt. I was absolutely fine. But my uh, my three-month-old um, Renault Clio was uh, not in a great state after it. Mm. I suppose that went, when it really hit home for me that you know, this is just not a safe way to, to really conduct work. 
um, not safe for me, not safe for other people around me. And my, my dad was actually a great, um, great support during that because I was very shaken after the incident. Oh, he yeah, says, I Listen, you just you think about what if you'd actually hurt somebody else. This has been a very, very healthy lesson for you. And my dad was absolutely right. I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I was in a similar situation to any of those guys who unfortunately harmed somebody as a consequence. And then that's where I realized, all right, well, I need to get something a lot better, more conducive to safe working practice. And thankfully, an emergency where my um, my passion lies, it shift work allows that where I don't have to get um, tired and I don't have to get tied to working for 24 hours straight, Yeah, which suits me down to the ground. So 29 hours, wow, that's a crazy time to be awake, uh, to be awake you know. And we've spoken on this podcast before and, you know, about people in the military and doing similar sort of things. You know, it's crazy. Um, people would think that during peak hour traffic with all the stimulation, it would keep you awake. And lots of people go, oh, it's better to drive during peak hour. Do you remember what it was like before you nodded off? Do you, or have you got any recollection or did you just wake up like and it was bang? Um, I remember as I was driving that I was feeling tired. Oh, no. <laughs> That's my ringtone. <laughs> Might just leave that in so people know how cool I am. So I was, uh, and I fully thought I put that to silent before we started this. <laughs> there you go. Might leave that in for authenticity. Is that what the word to call it? I don't know. I think authenticity sounds like it. It's better than my ringtone anyway, so I'm glad it wasn't my one. <laughs> I put it on as a joke after after Conor McGregor won the title. Yeah, and then I nearly just choked myself with the headphones. So there you go. So I was asking you, John, yeah, when, that, um, when that incident occurred, mm. did you just... Like, do you remember what it was like before you hit the hit the car, uh, hit the bus, like the bus with the car? What was it like? I th- I just remember that as I was driving by, I was feeling tired, and I, I turned up the radio trying to make make sure I kept myself awake. And I don't know whether I was thinking about say the activities planned for the weekend, but I think I just must have just nodded off, and then I just felt this almighty jolt as I went through into the back of the bus, and because it was in sort of bumper to bumper traffic, it didn't hit particularly hard. But it was enough to completely write off mm. my, my oh, car. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a complete write-off. And because it was in, a, say, a 30-mile-an-hour zone, zone, and it was say, bumper-to-bumper traffic, it wasn't that bad as it could have been from an accident point of view. So, so look, you weren't on the motorway, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would have been, I reckon I would have been brown-bred, to be honest. God. Yeah. Such a fright. How old were you when that happened? Uh, I would have just turned 23. God. Or t- 24, 24 it would have been. Such a, yeah, such a fright, you know, mm. and that's the consequence of, of, you know, poor, poor work hours or managing mm. shift work poorly is mm. or excessive amount of wake, wakefulness. Yeah. This is what can occur. Yeah. So these things do happen. Mm. And, and like you say, there's a, a huge amount of case studies like that. You yeah. know, I'd love to say I'm the only person that's done this. I'm not. I'm not the only person in Ireland, not the only person in Australia, States, UK. People do do this to themselves mm-hmm. and that they put themselves at tremendous risk. And I suppose I probably thought that I was going to be better than anybody else i would be fine yeah it won't happen to me it does happen to to just anybody and i didn't appreciate that at all yeah. and i think a lot of the failing was i didn't identify i needed to get a taxi home and i think what's terrific here is in my work environment i particularly when i was say a very junior registrar if i was just absolutely shattered that bosses would say you're not driving home tonight you get a taxi 
and they would say to you, you are getting a taxi home. And that has happened to me a few times, maybe, yeah, a few years ago. And, yeah. and it's nice to have somebody uh, among a colleague who can identify, you know, you're just not safe to go home yet. That's okay. You know, get your taxi in. And that was, um, it's, it's a great feeling of support that somebody actually cares enough to say, just to say it to you. Even if you, you know, actually, I'm actually all right. You don't need to worry. Yeah, but yeah, even yeah. to have someone identify that maybe you won't be okay. And then, yeah, I have taken taxis home and I know myself where my limit is. And if I do find I'm getting to that point, I just need to relax and rest. Yeah, it seems to be from talking to you and other people at the ER departments or ED departments are very strong with camaraderie, looking after one another, caring for each other. There seems to be little to no bitchiness or politics. Mm. Is is, is that right? Um, Or it's fairly... I reckon all the politics come from the the hospital probably outside of the emergency department and unlike you're saying it is a huge camaraderie based specialty um what you find is or certainly what i find is that a good emergency department does not function without cohesiveness between the nurses um say the healthcare assistants doctors the physios the ot's and even the admin staff it all has to work to be effective yeah. and when you work in some somewhere like um in charities where i work where it's been very effective people get on very well there's good support it ultimately makes it functional uh, makes it very functional as all the other emergency departments i've worked in in perth um because people want to get on people want to genuinely want to help and can identify where, say, other people maybe need extra help or are struggling for whatever reason with a difficult case, people see that and they come to help. And that's what I like about this specialty is that you're not on your own and the teamwork that's associated with it is very much associated with, or is is very much part of what I've been sort of built up to, to appreciate. I played a lot of sport growing up and I'm used to having teamwork as part of that yeah, and I yeah. enjoy that as part of being an ED doctor. Yeah, it's funny, like when a team is busy and they're actually focused on a goal or an objective mm. and they're just moving, mm. there is little to no time or room for bullshit or no. politics Excellent. or Absolutely. game playing. Yeah. So it's so good to be in an environment that's constantly moving. It, absolutely. I think that's what really builds it. It's when there's downtime, that's when the uh, that's when the game starts and, uh, mm. you know, it gets a bit, it gets a bit crazy. Um, so I have one question for you that's not even related to sleep before we talk a little bit about yeah. sport, before we finish up. Years ago when you used to go to the doctor, the doctor said to you, I'm Dr. McCormack. Yeah. Now to go, hi, I'm John. I'm one yeah. of the doctors here. What, what's that switch? <laughs> How did that I happen? Are you old enough to remember that? I, to I was honest, a bit intrigued by that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just, um, I've just always be, you know, I, that's how I like to introduce myself is I'm not some, you know, I'm not somebody who's above anybody else, or I try not to be. You know, that's I don't. I like to be associated as John. If I sound like so, Doctor So and So, you sort of saying oh, I sound like somebody really important, or somebody who knows yeah, yeah. Who, who knows a huge amount, who's published loads of research. I haven't published <laughs> loads, published loads of research. I'm not a a world leader or a um, you know f- famed you know famed person. You know, I'm I'm here as a I suppose an ordinary human being to think of it as a, a holistic approach again. Yeah. You know, you want to be able to, to talk to somebody on a normal level and have a normal conversation with them rather than think that this is all very prim, proper, structured. This yeah, is yeah. the way you act in front of the doctor. I'm just, uh, 
just an ordinary bloke. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to be treated like that as well. So, well, I like to be referred to as Doctor John. So, I'm <laughs> from now on, you can. <laughs> Someone said to me the other day, "Should I be calling you Doctor?" He says, "No, Lord will suffice." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, when when I got I got called it last night in an interview, and I was like, "That doesn't even sound real." Yeah, yeah. exactly. It doesn't, it just doesn't seem <laughs> seem like that, does it? Yeah. Seem, it seems a bit very surreal indeed yeah. to be sort of referred to like that when you're used to just you know, of your mates being oh, it's Ian, it's John, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose like like you, I grew up playing rugby as well and you know if you're your rugby mates would be like nah no he's <laughs> nah, definitely nah. not that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you do have a secondary interest around um probably sports and with the with the western force here mm. which has been revamped and relaunched here in western mm. australia which is great can you tell us a little bit about what you do with the western force yeah. as, a, as a medical doctor with those guys so what, what i primarily do now at the moment is mainly match day um duty so i'll look at um, doing concussion management and uh, stitch doc um, roles on game day um so Simon Jenkins is the primary uh, doctor um, now, so he d- will do all the, the day-in, day-out uh, medical management of injuries and daily monitoring of all the players. So then myself and a few of the other doctors from so the Perth area will come and give him a hand just during the, um, uh, the games themselves. Because what we find is that with such high-velocity um, high injuries and collisions mm-hmm. is that having a full medical team there is actually very advantageous in regards to management of these injuries is that we've had patients with you know, very unstable fractures uh, players collapse with heat, heat exhaustion after games and um, a condition called rhabdomyolysis yeah, but yeah. these are all things where having extra experience around is very advantageous it's not unknown that we'll do um, sedations to relocate shoulders and things like that outside of the emer- outside of the emergency department or hospital because it is a medical emergency and by having all of the expertise around it only makes uh, has better outcomes for players and helping improve their rehab from their injuries but also just from a safety point of view yeah so myself and a few of the other doctors come and give simon a hand just on those game days to be able to provide that service and yeah we, we enjoy going and watching the rugby as well and it's um it's a, it's a nice uh, little uh, bonus to be able to take in a bit of some good high level rugby yeah i that's that's why i like to work with the force like the last few years you always get like in the in the start of the season super rugby you get seats on the sideline where it's nice and sunny and warm. Yeah. And then in the winter, you get seats right up the back of the <laughs> rain. So I'm like, um, Charlie Higgins used to be there. I don't remember Charlie. Yeah, he's now, he's now at Leinster, actually. And I was like, Charlie, make sure those seats are up the back. And then yeah. we'll, we'll mark it. Right? I want the seats down the front, you know. So it's, it is quite nice, you know, being involved with these teams and getting to work with them and, um, you know, doing that. And I suppose probably a bit like yourself, like growing up, like, you know, dealing watching rugby players on TV, like mm. watching Irish rugby as we, as we do in Ireland. And, mm. You know, then you get over here and you're working with these teams and some of these guys were in the Wallabies and mm. play international rugby. It's, it's it's quite it's quite nice to yeah. kind of work with these work with these guys. You know, it it is very interesting and you see yeah. you come across all these household names that when you're like you say you're growing yeah. up with and you become accustomed to. Dude. And when you're a big rugby fan, you sort of think, well, these are the pinnacle of what you wanted to achieve when yeah. you're um, when you're a lad growing up and you meet all these different personalities and. I suppose what's really nice is that the vast majority of them, they're just ordinary blokes who have, you know, the fortune of being very good at what they yeah. do, are very passionate about it. And they're all very humble, particularly the cohort here in Perth are very humble guys. They realize how lucky they are to become professional rugby players and are terrific ambassadors yeah. for the game out here and will happily say hello to you no matter who you are, or what walk of life you are that um they're very um they're very good individuals let alone rugby players as well which is makes it even nicer to work yeah. with 
I know no, I, I agree with you. I did a heap of work with them, and we had like uh, Tim Smitty's in last year doing some stuff on jet lag. And um, you know, again, I've worked with lots of athletes, and not to say that athletes are bad, but I, my of all the groups, the Western Force was my favorite because they were just so good. We had them in the lab, like doing overnight sleep studies for sleep disorders, and we got that paper accepted a few weeks ago. So it'd be the first paper in yeah. sports using in laboratory polysomnography yeah. to identify sleep disorders, and the first in rugby union. Oh, terrific! So it's really good. But those guys were awesome because you know you're getting guys into a into a room overnight. You're watching them sleep. Mm. It's a little bit weird. You know, I got cameras on them, mm. wired up the whole lot. But all those guys have been great. Like you know, we had mm. 25 guys in there and. You know, they've gone off to their super rugby teams now and yeah. they're just really nice, you know, um, really nice people. You put up a post on Facebook or LinkedIn, they comment and they're yeah. nice. And like you said, if you run into them in town, very approachable, great with the kids and the fans. Yeah. Um, you know, and Ian Pryor is going to be on. Um, by the time this episode comes out, Ian Pryor will have been on and he's got a great story as well. And many of the guys are like that where they just never gave up and yeah. kept pushing and great ambassadors for the sport and some of the ones that moved on to the Rebels, such as Dave Wessels and mm. Richard Hardwick and... You know some of these local guys as well it's just awesome to see them doing so well in mm. the whole rugby community and it's even great to see the western force being revamped this year again yeah i think it's like you say it's a state of mind for a lot of those guys they they're a reason why they're professional athletes is not just down to ability but it's their ability to apply themselves and be so mm. diligent in the way that they approach their training their lifestyle and uh, as it's very obvious as in regards to their ability to look after their sleep as well to be able to go and play 80 minutes of very high level sport in a very demanding situation when 80,000 people are looking at you and possibly a few mm. million um, also on television, that's very daunting. I can only imagine what that sort of pressure is like for them. But they apply themselves really well. And yeah. I suppose on a sort of a side note, I um, so I, I play local rugby here for um, Cottesloe, so just a nice little club on the the um, the coastline. And we were very fortunate to have some Western pl uh, Force players assigned to us as their, their club. And... Um, we have the very, very good fortune of having two international players who have played for us this year when they're not playing for the Western Force, oh, the really? form of Marcel Bracchi and, oh, yeah, Marcel. and Peter Grant. Now, I mean, to put in perspective, Peter Grant is one of the most exceptional Super Rugby players of all time. Who's, I think, I'm pretty sure he's still the record point scorer for Super Rugby in history and comes and plays with us in Cottesloe and, you know, Say a, a relative, yes, the state league, but still very small in comparison to some of the matches that he's played and is a, an ex Springbok, obviously, as well. And he'll happily come down to the club, have a beer, chat to anyone, and doesn't. St and one of the things that I really admire about the guy, he doesn't stand up and say who he is and what his big deal is. He just comes down and has a chat and will happily sit and talk to the, the life members about how well the minis are playing and what the good performance, say, the threes put in. And that's. That's a testament to the type of people we want, not only in rugby union, but we want in, um, say, in, in WA. They're the type of people who do really well and make a name for themselves as being legends of the game, as that type of person who isn't above what sport's all about. Yeah, and if you want to hear Marcel Bracky, Marcel Bracky was on last season, I think episode five of the podcast, mm. um, after he got his first cap for the USA. Um, mm. And so, yeah, and Marcel was an interesting character. You know, he's got a great story and... Uh, 
what what I love about Marcel never scored a try in Super Rugby and then he scores three tries against the Sunwolves first time <laughs> ever so like you know it just came as a as a as the floodgates open up for him you know that was a that was actually a fantastic uh, a fantastic day I was over with him during that game and I remember after oh, you're in Japan, were you? I was in Japan with him I remember after he scored his first one I was like Marcel this is just terrific you got to score he's like I know I maybe get might get another one today and he goes on to score three he couldn't yeah. believe it but uh, it's it's just testament to all the hard work he puts in uh, yeah. the same as as Ian they those are guys who deserve all of the success that they can get, particularly out of the new um, Super Rugby, or sorry, the new um, um, rugby t- competition that um, Andrew Forrest has devised. When that comes to fruition next year, after all the games this year, those are the guys who are going to do really well because not only are they terrific players, but they're yeah. great personalities and great ambassadors for the game as well. They'll do yeah. f- fantastically well. Yeah, no, it's great. And it's, it's great, like I said, it's great to see it here in Perth. So, um, John, before we wrap up, um, if anybody is getting into, once again, to medicine, they want to do medicine, they want to study it, they want to be a doctor, they want to do shift work, what, what would be some of your closing advice to them? Don't do it. Do it. <laughs> I would say I the the role itself is fantastically rewarding. I There are days when you come home and you think, why have I done this? What am I doing to myself? I'm <laughs> utterly banjaxed after having a hard shift and you just fall into bed and you sleep well. But I think what makes, the, what makes it worthwhile is being able to meet fantastic people along the way and perhaps make some very big life-changing interventions for people. And that can be from... It can be reviving somebody from who's had a heart attack and has had CPR done to seeing them survive. It can be even to the polar opposite, whereby you can at least treat somebody whose relative has died with a bit of dignity and respect and give them reassurance. And the ability to do that, I think, is the difference between being an okay doctor and being a good doctor, is being able to say, be able to say the the right thing at the right time for somebody who's in they're most distressed and that's what usually what people come in to emergency department are they're Mm. in severe distress and all those tasks put together with exciting presentations and all the stuff you see in the emergency department i think makes the job so worthwhile and the reason why i get up to go and do it each and every day i really enjoy it and it's been it's been a hard road but it's been a very worthwhile and um enjoyable road to get through and so hopefully when we get the last of these exams out of the way, then I can really enjoy it. So then will we call you Mr. Not Doctor? Is that what would happen if you become a consultant? Will we call you Mr.? Oh, uh, you can call me Hey You over there. Hey You. That'll, that'll, that'll be sufficient enough for me. You'll be all right. Hey, Johnny. <laughs> John, thanks very much. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, do you do any social media? Um, yeah, so I've got a, a Twitter handle, uh, just uh, at Johnny Iliff. Um, um, and yeah that's really about uh, the, the height of my social media stuff so too busy uh, <laughs> uh, i just uh, i like being on the outdoor sign and uh, doing uh the doing majority of the stuff through twitter and looking at articles and things there so occasionally yeah. there'll be a few articles thrown on which i'll put on the twitter feed if i've done anything new out there or in uh, life in the fast lane um is probably the best uh, medical um uh, social media site around in regards to getting the most up-to-date research from a social media perspective, if anybody's interested in the medical world or um, has anything that they want to research in regards to um, sort of medical faculties, particularly in critical care, life in the fast lane is the place to go. Okay, I'll have a look at that as well. Yeah, all right. We'll put your Twitter handle up in the show notes. And John, thanks very much for your time. No problem. And uh, best luck with the last of your exams. Great. Thank you very much, Ian. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>